shut up, you're always talking. The Italian sounds much nicer. He's content to be a jerk. He doesn't care who knows it. This is the Shut Up, You're Always Talking podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Shut Up, You're Always Talking, and I am pizza artist Eric John. Uh, Before we get into anything today, I'd like to tell you about my friend John Scambato over at Yacht Club Soda. Yacht Club Soda has been making amazing artisan sodas for more than 100 years. They've got some crazy flavors. Let me tell you, they've got blue raspberry, grape, uh, they've got pineapple, grapefruit, cream, orange cream, lemon lime. I could keep going and going and going. There's so many amazing flavors to choose from. And you don't have to live in Rhode Island, where Yacht Club is the official soda of Rhode Island, to enjoy it. You can go to YachtClubSoda.com and get some for yourself. Uh, Order it today. If you're having a big party, if you're having a big cookout, impress all of your friends. Get some of the best soda in the world. They're going to be like, what is this soda? And you can tell them, oh, it's from this place in Rhode Island. It's incredible. It's amazing. you got to try it. Get it right now, YachtClubSoda.com. Okay, on the show today, we have a real treat for you today. Uh, Kirk Bazigian um, is joining us. Uh, he was a project manager, marketing whiz for Hasbro, uh, and he led some of the most successful and memorable product lines in the history of the toy industry. And most recently, he was featured in Netflix's docuseries, uh, The Toys That Made Us. Kirk, welcome to the show. Kirk, glad to be here. So, okay, so what... I'm just right off the bat. I'm curious. Did you always want to work in the toy industry, like even as a kid? Um, you know, as a kid, I guess. I mean, in the back of your mind, like working in the toy business, I guess enters every kid's mind. But no, as a, I mean, when I really started to seriously think about what I was going to do for a career, I wanted to be an advertising um, copywriter. I mean, I wanted to work in advertising. I wanted to write and design ads. I do a little bit of artwork and. Um, I like to write. So, you know, when I went to school at the Providence College, that's what I started to focus on was, um, you know, writing. And I took as many art classes as I could. I took a a few uh, advertising and public relations classes. Uh, So that's what I really wanted to do. And then I uh, but I never necessarily had a toy company in the back of my mind. I just wanted to get into the world of communications. And um, how... So when you got to working at Hasbro, um, how at a company like that, how important is the advertising compared to the other things that the company does in terms of, you know, selling the product and it being a success? Like, how important is it really? Advertising in the area that I was in, which was boys toys, um, advertising is, you know, the mo- probably the most important thing you can, important element uh, of the marketing mix i mean you have to be able to promote toys uh to kids and um and then hopefully you know if you can you reach their parents but you know our our goal was to reach kids five to five to twelve years old and then have the nag factor go to work have them bug their parents every time they went shopping for a toy <laughs> well i'll tell you something it worked because to this day i can remember Sometimes I remember the commercials uh, for certain toys and certain shows and certain things even more than I remember the shows or the toys themselves. 
Oh um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the TV commercials for toys. Um, you know, when I worked with our ad agency, um, two of the copywriters that I worked with, um, their ultimate dream was to be, become script writers. I mean, they wanted to be Hollywood script writers. And um, they approached all of our advertising with the idea that they were creating a 30-second movie. That's incredible. Um, I want to play something really quickly. This is, this is something that I've never forgotten my entire life. This commercial had such a big impact on me that I wanted to buy, or obviously I wanted my parents to buy, everything associated with it. So I'm going to play it real quick, and then I just want to get your reaction to okay. it. Sure. WWF figures with real wrestling action. Jake the Snake Roberts versus the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Yeah. DiBiase lands a million dollar punch. Match Hulk Hogan against the Macho King, Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. My almost master finish Hogan, guaranteed. Hogan slams him again. Match Andre the Giant against the Ultimate Warrior. Andre will squash the Ultimate Maniac. WWF figures so close to the real thing, it's like being in the ring. <laughs> No, those were amazing commercials. I I mean, even now, like even now watching it, I want to go buy the toys. It's it's amazing. And, and you know, I think it really is a talent in and of itself. Do you remember the making and the the production around that particular commercial? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Those commercials were shot in a New York studio, uh, as opposed to most of our commercials, which we shot... um, in you know various locations around the world believe it or not um that the, those commercials were shot at a, a a film production company right outside of uh new york city in new rochelle called firehouse films and um the director john sterner uh bought an old abandoned firehouse uh that was right by the side of the railroad tracks as you take uh Asella into new york city um, every time I go by it, I, I'm reminded of, of you know, filming there. Um, but it was a big fi- uh, fire station. He, he named his company Firehouse Films. And um, uh, we would film all the WWF, WWF commercials, now WWE uh, commercials at his studio. Um, and uh, the amazing thing is those all of those wrestlers, um, their personas are nothing like what in reality. They're nothing like they were in the ring. They were the nicest, calmest um, business gentlemen that you could imagine. I hope I'm not blowing anyone's cover, but they were they were great guys. Oh, I don't think I uh, know. I don't think uh, at least you know at least for any adults listening, I'm sure you're not blowing anyone's cover. Um, but uh, w- I wonder which of those wrestlers. In, in working with them and um, you know, because a lot of people don't get to see what they're like sort of behind the scenes. And I'm sure you worked with all kinds of people um, during your time there, but like w- were, the, were there any of the wrestlers in particular that really kind of stood out to you or were particularly memorable in, in terms of, um, you know, being easy to work with or particularly fun to work with? Um, Macho man, Randy Savage, God bless his soul was unbelievable. Um, he he was just a dynamo and uh, really got into it. In fact, uh, we would um, we would pr- produce um, what we called sizzle videos for sales meetings, and um, they were like you know just short videos uh, to hype up our sales force. And um, we used Macho Man to to uh, you know really uh, like 
go after some of the key personalities in our sales force, the way he would go after wrestlers in the ring, you know, by insulting them and, you know, really carrying on. I mean, he would, he would really get into it. Um, he was great. Um, I guess the, the one wrestler that really blew my mind because, um, uh, even as an adult, I was afraid of him <laughs> was, um, the undertaker. Um, the Undertaker was this big, hulking, you know, close to seven foot tall guy. I mean, he was huge. And he showed up for the for the uh, the commercial shoot, and he's got a book with him. Uh, during during uh, uh, takes, he'd be sitting down reading a book. Um, again, just a totally different personality <laughs> than what you'd expect from somebody that was, you know, called the Undertaker. I know. That's so funny. It really is. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, it's something to keep in mind, too, when you're, you know, that, you know, these guys are performers. They're actors, right? I mean, they're, they're exactly. They're, yep. Um, so when it comes to a product like WWF action figures or something like that, where um, you're working with another brand, how how do the how does the creative process work? Is it mostly coming from WWF, or do they kind of hand it over to you? And Hasbro really has you know more free reign to kind of come up with ideas. Like, how does that back and forth work? What's the dynamic there? The dynamic was we um, first of all we immersed ourselves into understanding uh, the license, um, so we spent time visiting uh, the WWF. I keep saying F, but WWF slash E in, in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. Um, we, you know, visit, uh, they have a, a training ring there. So we, we got to know some of the trainers, the wrestlers. You really, the best way to develop a, a, a toy line, I would tell my, my product managers was really immerse yourself in the, um, in the license, really get to understand the license as much as possible. And so they would, you know, they would meet with the WWF. Um, we'd get the bios, we'd watch a lot of tapes, videotapes, um, really get a sense of who the personas were. Then we, you know, to get, and we would do this with our research and development team, our designers. Um, and so uh, we would then put together uh, characters and, and the mechanisms because all of our um, wrestlers had certain mechanisms that brought them to life with the, hopefully their signature wrestling move that we could incorporate into the toy. Um, and then we we take all that down to um, we take all that down to uh, meet with Vince Vince McMahon and his licensing people, and we present to Vince and his wife, um, who had ultimate you know they both had ultimate say over what would be done. And once again, they were really great to work with. They they were people who understood you know we were making toys and we couldn't we weren't making exact replicas of of their wrestlers and. The thing that was a little different about our toys were they were kind of cartoony characters of the wrestlers. They weren't really, really realistic representations um, of the wrestlers. And so they, they got it and appreciated that and uh, thought that that separated us from most other action figures at the time, which were so, um, you know, realistically tried to be as realistic in sculpture as possible. Ours were a little more fun, a little more cartoony. So it was a question of, you know, getting the essence of the characters, uh, working up designs, and then taking them to WWF slash E to um, get their approval. And in addition, I mean, they would give their, their approval, but they'd also offer suggestions. 
as to how we might improve. Um, they would also reveal to us who the hot new wrestlers would be uh, over the next, uh, say, 9 to 18 months out. So um, they would prepare us for, hey, you know, um, we're going to, Macho Man wants to go on vacation, so he's not going to be with us next year. Maybe you should focus on X, you know. Well, I mean, you guys obviously did an amazing job because I can remember even as a kid just just feeling like I was, you know, it's like Jesse Ventura says in the commercial. It's like you feel like you're in the ring. Like I remember being a kid and actually feeling like I was creating a real WWE wrestling match uh, with my action figures, you know, and I had tons of them, tons of them. Um you mentioned Vince McMahon. You know, there's so much, I feel like, in the news, especially now, about Vince. And there's all these famous stories about, like, what a nightmare he is to work with. And I always had the impression, like, I always kind of thought, like, as long as if, if you if he felt like you cared about his product, that he was probably pretty easy to work with. Was that your experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting that you say that. Yeah, he um, uh, he was a fun, funny guy. Um uh, made us all feel welcome whenever we'd go to his offices. Um, there were, you know, very low key. You know, he wasn't this, you know, hyper businessman. You know, um, demanding things from us. He um, he looked at it as a as a real partnership, and he looked um, he'd offer suggestions, and he'd want it done if it was something that you know uh, he wanted done his way. You know, you'd you'd know it. That's how he wants it done. But he never came across as a heavy, you know. He never came across as a, a difficult man to deal with. Um, we we found him to be, um, you know, a pleasure to work with. It's really cool to hear. It really is. And I think I always kind of assume if something's really successful and and you know it's usually the fruit of of something good, and it it's got to be the fruit of people being able to work together, or else it wouldn't be a good product. So that's that's sort of. What my assumption usually is. So it's good to hear that. Um, so I feel like the other, the, the, the thing I feel like you're most known for um, is your work with G.I. Joe. Is that something that you started working on like when you first got to Hasbro or did it, was it more of a slow burn? Um, it was more of a slow burn. Um, when I first got to Hasbro, G.I. Joe was on its way out. Um, the original... 12-inch line, had, um, which I had played with as a kid, um, had like slowly um, petered out, and it was being replaced by a new version of G.I. Joe, which many people don't even remember, called Super Joe. And Super Joe were 8-inch figures um, that were almost like superhero-ish in their costuming. It, no mil it was not military. It wasn't even adventure. And um, my very first assignment um, when I joined Hasbro, I started at Hasbro in July of 1978. And my very first assignment was to write package copy for Super Joe's Ultimate um, Enemy, which was a battery-operated dinosaur, a uh, uh, bizarre-looking um, uh almost like combination triceratops stegosaurus kind of uh, dinosaur. And the amazing thing about it was it was a toy that was like way ahead of its time. Um, it was motorized, so it could crawl, acro crawl across the floor 
It made sound. It had flashing lights. Um, it was a terrifying creature. It was called uh, Terran, the beast from beyond. And uh, the way, the, the interesting thing was that the way you, you or G. Super Joe fought the beast from beyond was with this tiny little uh, laser flashlight. And all it was was a simple little flashlight that you, you if you hit the uh, Terran in its, in its uh, sensor, he would stop and let out a roar like he had been, you know, hurt. Um, and uh, so it was a, it was a really, you know, for 1978, it was a really high-tech type toy. Um, unfortunately, um, that marked the end of G.I. Joe. I mean, they we shipped Terran. Um, I think we advertised it for about a week. And then um, Hasbro just decided to pull the plug on, on G.I. Joe that year uh, or into the going into the fall of 78. I don't even think it really hit Christmas. It was crazy. Is that di- is that dinosaur one of those toys that like today is like really desirable and rare and and like valuable? I would imagine so. I mean, I really don't follow the pricing of the um, the uh, nineteen sixty four you know GI Joe up to seventy six seventy eight. I really don't follow that. Um, but I would imagine it is um, because I know it didn't get much distribution. It's so in, it's so interesting to me to, to think of G.I. Joe's arch nemesis being a dinosaur, having grown up with, you know, real American hero and Cobra and all that stuff. Um, what was what was the genesis of that particular line, which obviously became just insanely successful? Uh, you're talking about the the real here American hero line. Yeah, well, um. Uh, that that's the line that I did work on um, when I first had after I had joined Hasbro. Um, one of the marketing guys that became friends of mine was a, a gentleman by the name of Bob Krupus. Bob had been a uh, toy buyer for a chain of um, toy stores. Well, it was a discount chain, much like um, Target. Um, it was called uh, Two Guys, and they were a discount chain of maybe a couple of hundred stores. From Connecticut down through New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, maybe into Maryland, Middle Atlantic. Um, and he was a toy buyer for, for them. And he, Bob had known about the success of the original 1964 G.I. Joe because he was buying it. Um, he joined Hasbro uh, because of his uh, experience as a retail buyer. One of the genius moves of Stephen Hassenfeld was he liked to get various opinions um, from many different people, and um, he made made a conscious effort to try and hire for his marketing department um, a lot of former retail buyers, um, and Bob was one of them. And um, Bob and I became friendly uh, over a number of different assignments that I, I I did. I did a lot of work with Bob, and um, I guess it was about a year, nineteen seventy nine, maybe into early nineteen eighty. Um, Bob asked me to help him put together a pitch to represent the original 1964 G.I. Joe, all the army, uh, you know, four service branches, all the accessories, etc., and make a pitch to Sears Roebuck, who was the largest, uh, toy retailer in the country. Uh, nobody remembers that now, and I'm sure you don't, but, um, uh, before Toys R Us, before Walmart, there was Sears Roebuck, and Sears was the largest toy retailer in in the world probably 
Um, and so Bob had an appointment to meet with the buyer in uh, Chicago where their headquarters were. And I put together the pitch for him, um, complete with, you know, I took old catalogs and I cut them up and, you know, to show what we would, what we would reintroduce, et cetera. Um, and Bob made the uh, pitch and the buyer loved the idea. He just said it was too soon to bring up, bring back the 1964 version, the 12 inch version, because it had only been off the market since 1976. Um, so Bob was the kind of guy who never took no for an answer. Um, no meant maybe to him. <laughs> and, uh, that was one of, that was one of the things he trained me and taught me. Um, uh, and so when he came back, he, he told me, well, it didn't go as well as I thought, but we're going to figure out a way to get G.I. Joe back. And he was convinced that G.I. Joe had a, had a, had a life. Um, and so um, I guess the 1980 Olympics, Bob happened to be up in Boston uh, having brunch with his wife and a bunch of friends. And when the U.S. hockey team defeated, I think it was... I think it was Finland. It wasn't Russia. Um, oh, no, I guess it was Russia. And then they went and beat Finland for the championship. But anyway, um, that 1980 Miracle on Ice team, um, when they beat Russia, he was at a at a, a brunch in a bar in downtown Boston. And the whole bar erupted into USA, USA, USA. And he came back to work Monday morning and called me into his office. And he said, um, by now I was working for him as a product manager in marketing. Um, and he said, you know, get everybody together. I want the whole boys team together because we're going to talk about how we're going to relaunch G.I. Joe. And uh, within an hour, we had everybody on board with we're going to do it in a new size. We're going to do it. We're going to focus on vehicles this time. Uh, figures are going to be the accessories. The whole marketing plan kind of, you know, was hatched in an hour and a half um, that Monday morning right after the uh, the uh, Olympics. Wow. So it's sort of for that particular toy line, it it seems like it's one of those things that really is affected very much by real world events in the sense that like I I would imagine that it seems like during and right after the Vietnam War, it was something that wasn't as popular. And then with this sort of resurgence of patriotism and um, American pride, um, obviously he was able to recognize that this might be the perfect time to, to relaunch this. Um, is that something that, that you have to constantly take into account when you're pushing ideas or you're trying to come up with new ideas is sort of, you know, where is the culture at and what makes sense? Absolutely. Um, you know, I teach, I teach marketing now at Providence college and (laughs) I teach principles of marketing, which is the first, you know, beginning level marketing course that every business student has to take and one of the things one of the key points i try to make is that you know business has to always keep in mind what's going on in the world around them um and so you always have to constantly be constantly be analyzing the marketing environments out there the political environment the social environment the cultural environment um the economic environment um and so you know bob had a unique way of um of teaching me all that and uh you know and, and the rest is history i mean we were able to successfully relaunch um gi joe in a different you know size a different version um uh all because um we were listening to the marketplace 
And when does all the other stuff come into play? And so I'm, what I'm talking about about is the cartoons, the comic books, the movies, um, all that stuff. Is that stuff that is pushed by a company like Hasbro or is that something where like other entities are coming to you and saying, hey, we'd like to use, you know, it's sort of the reverse of the WWE situation where they're coming to you, movie studios and whatnot, television companies and are saying, hey, we'd like to make a show about this. Yeah, well, the way the way it worked with GI Joe, I mean, this was, you know, I I like to claim that we we wrote the book on how to market modern action figures. Um, we we were hitting the marketplace at a time when Star Wars uh, action figures were at their peak. Um, they were setting the pace, and. We were entering the marketplace as a competitor to Star Wars. And the thing that, again, Bob, Bob making use of his, um, making use of his retail background, um, Bob knew that what Kenner was doing with Star Wars was they were using Star Wars as a weapon to um, get other less desirable toys into the marketplace. In other words, your sales force, you know, with Star Wars being the number one brand, um, if you had a doll that the buyer didn't think was going to make it, or if you had another boy's item that was kind of iffy, um, you could, it's called leverage. You would, you would say to the retailer, look, if you want your allotment of Star Wars this year, you have to take this crummy doll uh, or this, you know, lousy boy's vehicle concept. I mean, they wouldn't say it in those words, obviously, but. You know, I mean, it, it, you'd use your leverage and say, otherwise, we're going to cut back on how many Star Wars figures we can give you. So Bob, knowing that, uh, said the time to introduce G.I. Joe is right now because the buyer is looking for an alternative to that kind of leverage. Well, well, <clears throat> we didn't have a $30 million movie. Star Wars did. We had G.I. Joe and that was it. We had a name. Uh, so what we did was we said we need some way of getting G.I. Joe back into the popular culture. And so what we did was we we came up with the idea of um, a suggestion of mine. I mean, at the time, baseball trading cards were huge. It was a huge new hobby. Um, they'd always been around. I mean, I had baseball trading cards and I still had some in a shoebox. But at, by 1980... They were becoming a real collector hobby where they were gaining value. So I said, why don't we put baseball cards on the back of all our packaging and tell kids who these characters are and do the same on our vehicle packages and tell kids what these vehicles were and build our story that way. Um, and our ad agency liked the idea, but they said, you know, we, we really think we need something, you know, even bigger than that. And that's, again, you know, I collect comic books and, and we're brainstorming and throwing things, ideas out. So I said, well, why don't we approach Marvel Comics? Marvel Comics, um, I know, uh, licenses toy properties and they, they do comic book versions of toys, except, you know, uh, they were doing at the time, uh, well, they had the Star Wars license, but they were also doing um, a, a license called ROM, which was a robotic uh, action figure from of all places, Milton Bradley. And um, so I said, I know they, they're open to it. So next thing I know, our ad, our ad agency uh, is setting up a meeting at Marvel Comics. 
And um, Bob went to the meeting, again, armed with information that the designers and I gave him, um, blew the editors away at Marvel Comics and the publisher. And the next thing you know, we've got a deal with Marvel Comics. And they were going to originally do a one-shot comic book that would be launched with a 30-second, uh, eventually it became a 60-second, uh, animated TV commercial. And uh, it was the first time a comic book was ever advertised on television. And that comic book sold cl close to 2 million copies. Yeah. It was the biggest comic book uh, title that had been sold in about, I think, 30 years. And the other thing I, I didn't realize at the time, and being a bit of a comic book collector now, and I read a lot of the history of comics, um, in 1982, Marvel Comics and the entire comic book industry was basically going out of business. Um, titles, sales were way down. Um, you know, distribution was, was way off. Um, Drugstores didn't want to carry comic books anymore. Supermarkets didn't want to carry comic books anymore. And that's why the whole industry changed where you now go to comic book stores to buy your comic books. Um, and that's all because the industry was having a real struggle. Um, our G.I. Joe comic book uh, advertising um, revitalized the whole comic book industry. That is incredible. And, you know, you were talking about leverage. It, was there ever any worry that a company like Star Wars could then go to Marvel and say, hey, if you, you know, if you take on this G.I. Joe comic book, then we're going to go elsewhere. We're going to go find someone else to do our comics. You know, I guess they could have, but they never did. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the next thing you know, um, after that one shot, uh, the next thing we know, we're being contacted by Marvel and saying, we want to do a monthly series. And it ran for 155 issues. Um, and, and what we did is we would advertise a new uh, every quarter we would create a new ad for the comic book. And eventually, um, Larry Hama, who was the editor of the comic books, um, we would work, would work very closely with him where he would see our product line. We'd give him a calendar of when vehicles and figures would be introduced. And he found a way of incorporating the figures and vehicles into the comic books at the time they were going to be in the marketplace. So it was all very diabolical. I mean, we had... <laughs> animated commercials about the comic book, the comic book featuring the toys that had just hit the marketplace, and the rest is history. I mean, G.I. Joe took off like a skyrocket. So speaking of history, I want to play one more thing, um, probably one of the most iconic pieces of audio for any kid growing up in the 80s and early 1990s, and uh, then I want to ask you about it. <laughs> G.I. Joe! It's G.I. Joe against Cobra and Destro fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe is there! 
G.I. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against Cobra, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. Yeah, that was that was the intro, the theme song for the animated uh, TV series. It's it, like <laughs> when I listen to it, I all I think of is just to me, it's just this amazing work of art that like just hits on every level. Who was responsible for that piece of music? Um, the the uh, the guy who who wrote that music was uh, the one of the principals of our advertising agency, Griffin Bacall. Griffin Bacall was a uh, uh, an ad agency that was uh, founded by two. Uh, former advertising executives of an agency that Hasbro used in the 1970s, Benton and Bowles, out of New York. Uh, Tom Griffin and Joe Bacall uh, were, well, Joe was the creative director, Tom was like the account manager. Uh, they were both buddies, and they were also friendly with Stephen Hassenfeld. Stephen encouraged them to leave Benton and Bowles and start their own ad agency. And he basically said, um, you'll be my agency. And so they became Hasbro's captive advertising agency. Eventually, um, they would take on other clients, mostly in the toy business, non-competing uh, companies in the toy business. But they were primarily an in-house ad agency located in downtown New York City. Um, Joe uh, Bacall was a gifted copywriter, um, jingle writer. In fact, uh, Joe Bacall cre created um, the um, the uh, Sugar Crisp teddy bear for Sugar Crisp cereal, and he created the jingle for Sugar Crisp cereal. Um, so he was familiar with the power of jingles and the the way they affected a kid and stayed in a kid's um, memory. Um, he was also, uh, you know, Joe was also um, very familiar with animation. Because, you know, the, the Sugar Crisp Bear used animation in their commercials. Um, and so Joe uh, became very familiar with the animators in New York City um, who did advertising animation. Now, advertising animation is a lot different than uh, TV animation for, you know, a, a TV series. But he was familiar in, in, with how the process worked. He and Tom approached Stephen to create a separate subdivision called Sunbow Productions. Sunbow became our animated uh, studio, um, and they were located in New York and then out in L.A. And in addition to Sunbow, when it came time to create the G.I. Joe animated TV series, which was an outgrowth of the uh, five-part miniseries, um, at the same time, Marvel Productions had started on the West Coast, and it was being headed by Stan Lee, who had moved uh, to uh, California from his position as Marvel editor. He was now the, quote, creative director of Marvel in L.A., and he was let, making deals with all kinds of entertainment studios. So they created Marvel, Marvel Productions. And so we worked, uh, uh, I worked with, you know, hand in glove with uh, Sunbow, who then worked with Marvel Productions, I'd fly out to Marvel Productions uh, a couple of times a year, um, got to approve all the uh, animated scripts 
uh, had to approve every monthly comic book, uh, both from the script point of view, the artwork point of view. Um, I approved all the model sheets for the animation. Got to meet a hero of mine, Stan Lee, several times. Um, so yeah, it was an it was an amazing adventure. How everything all seemed to come together. What was it like meeting Stanley? Oh, uh, first of all, um, you know, I grew up reading Marvel comics from the time I was like ten years old. Um, and I first met Stan Lee. I call him Stan because we were on a first name basis, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I first met Stan at the very first Boston Comic Convention. Um, and I think that was like around 19, I'm going to say 1972 or 73. I was still in college. And um, Stan, believe it or not, I was sitting at a table in the uh, getting a cup of coffee. And there were no seats anywhere. And Stan walked by and asked, can I sit down here? And I said, of course, because it was like, you know, a couple of seats were at the table I was. So we just had a nice chat. Um I reminded him that as a kid, I think it was in the ninth grade, I had sent him a letter uh, asking advice on how to get into the comic book business. Um, and I actually still have that letter. I have it framed um, that he sent me back a response. Um, and he was he was really amazed at that. He was, you know, he, he's a, he was a humble, sweet guy. You know, sometimes you meet, quote, your heroes and you're really disappointed in in them. Um my, I mean, Stan, and the few times I met him in, in New York and, the, and then out on the West Coast, he was always, like, just a great guy, friendly, uh, always willing to talk, um, was always, I think, humbled by the, the how su successful his his uh, create, create creations had become. Uh, so, I mean, again, you know, I've been lucky in terms of meeting people that... Um, uh, my heroes, in, in quotes, that, you know, I can still recall very fondly as they be as them being heroes. Do you think there's something to, you know, when somebody creates something and then it becomes very popular and it becomes successful and they get to see, you know, millions and millions of, of kids and even adults as they get older enjoying their product um, that, you know, aside from just the feeling of a job well done, there's just a personal satisfaction um, knowing that so many other people are enjoying something that you created, did, did is was that your sense of him? And I was also wondering, is that something that you felt really strongly when you saw so many millions of kids playing with GI Joes and just having a ball? Oh yeah, I think I think Stan was very um, humbled by how successful all his characters were. I think he truly got a got a kick out of seeing how you know. And seeing the phenomenon he helped create. Um, and I always, you know, always say, you know, he, there, there were a couple of people who taught me everything I know about marketing. Um, Stan Lee was one and Bob Krupas, my boss at Hasbro, was the other. Um, uh, I never really took any formal marketing classes. Um, you know, I was a humanities major at Providence College and I, you know, I, I, I wanted to get into advertising. Um, but I learned marketing through, you know, studying uh two of the best marketers around. So, um, yeah, I think Stan took, you know, great pleasure out of that. I get a kick out of um, going to, you know, toy shows and G.I. Joe shows in particular and, and having people come up to me and, and tell me how, you know, much pleasure my creations have given them. Um, 
you know, I've also encountered a number of people at these conventions who, who told me that G.I. Joe inspired them to enter the military or to become uh, a policeman or a firefighter. Uh, and, and that always humbles me when I hear people say that. And um, I remember one, one young man, I uh, wasn't so young anymore, who came up to me and, and thanked me because he said, my, mom, my dad was in the military. And uh, we traveled around the world a lot, and I never had a lot of friends. Um, and then I happened to lose my dad. And he said, the one constant in my life and the one friend that I had was all my G.I. Joes that he had bought me over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of, every time I tell that story or, or remember that story, I kind of get a little tear in my eye because... You know, this was a very sincere young man who, who had a career in the military himself. He was currently, at the time, in the U.S. military. So, um, yeah, you know, you, you know you, you're making a toy, and you think that's all you're doing is making a toy. But, you know, the, the impact that your toy had on a lot of people is just simply amazing. You know, and it really is a testament to obviously just the, the job that everyone and that you did with that particular toy line. And, you know, marketing is something I've always been just sort of fascinated with. I, I think it's so interesting. And, you know, I feel like marketing in general um, and advertising in general gets, gets a bad rap in general. Um, you know, what, what do you say to people who, who say things like, you know, marketing is really just a sophisticated form of manipulation or something like that. Like what, what's your reaction to, you know, people saying that sort of thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I understand it. I understand them saying it, but the fact of the matter is, um, marketing or advertising can only convince you to do something once if at all. And if you happen to try a product and you're not happy with it, are you going to buy it again? The answer is no. So all marketing can do is it's kind of like it can lead, lead you like a little horse to water. And if you want to drink, you drink. Um, but then if, you're, if it doesn't taste good, you're going to never drink that water again. So the same thing with product and marketing. Um, you know, yeah, we can inform you we can we can you know educate you that this product is there but um we can't force you to buy it we can encourage you to buy it and we can't really force you but if you do you better be happy with that experience because if that product doesn't provide any value or you're not happy with that experience you're never going to buy the product again and then you're going to talk bad about the product um and so you end up ruining what you know quote the marketing experience well, to me, it's such common sense. It's like the, the worst thing in the world would be to, you know, tell somebody a product is a particular thing and then they get the product and it's like the opposite of what they were told it was. And then, I mean, now you've got a nightmare on your hands. So I always it always made me scratch my head when I hear people say things like that. It's just to me, it's like, you, you know, you just don't have an understanding of of what's really going on here. It's sort of like it's something you kind of want to believe about business and marketing and advertising and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and like I said, to, to me, a lot a lot of times it's, it's, it's the marketing and the songs and all that stuff that that as an adult now I remember more than anything. 
Um, and it really colors the, the experience that they had playing with the toys, you know? So, um, it really is a testament to, I think it's amazing the, the work that you've done. Um, when, so when did you leave Hasbro? Um, I left Hasbro in, uh, let's see, 96, 1996. And mm-hmm. how, how, and did you go right into teaching? No, no, I, I went from, from leaving Hasbro to becoming an independent um, inventor and uh, marketing consultant for the toy business. So I spent the next, I spent the next uh, almost, let's see, four, maybe the next almost 20 years um, uh, working as an independent inventor and consultant. And what, what sort of things are you inventing um, or have well, you invented? Well, um uh, was it lucky enough to become partners with Don Levine, the man who originally worked at Hasbro and introduced the original G.I. Joe, 1964 G.I. Joe? Um, he and I uh, were partners for about 10 years, um, 12 years, uh, before he decided he wanted to retire. Um, and uh, he and I developed a couple of different lines of action figures, uh, both that we sold to um, a couple of different toy companies and that we did ourselves. We did a line of um, action figures called Real Heroes, which was a line of collectible firefighter and police figures, much like the original 64 G.I. Joe, but they were high-end collectibles. They were like $100 a piece um, collectible figures. Um, we used that license to help create a toy line that we sold to Target exclusively um, and did a series of uh, three and three quarter inch figures and a twelve and two twelve inch figures. Um, we also developed a biblical line called Almighty Heroes, um, where um, they were designed for preschoolers. And so we did um, heroes from the Bible: uh, Moses, Noah, uh, David, and I wrote um, many. Uh, uh, call them graphic novels that um, one of our G.I. Joe designers did all the artwork for. Um, and that was quite successful in the specialty market, the uh, specialty toy store and religious store market. Um, and then I went to work for a friend of mine who has a company in, um, uh, well, now it's in Seekonk, it was in Providence, called Little Kids. And Little Kids makes bubble toys. And he built, he, he was a friend of mine that we worked together at Hasbro uh, for a number of years. And then he left to start this little toy company of his. And he, he asked me to come on board as a consultant, but a full-time consultant. He wanted me there full-time. So I worked at his place for about five or six years. Um, and we together developed a backyard baseball toy called Junk Ball, which is a uh, upgraded, sophisticated, high-tech version of Wiffle Ball. That's so, that's so cool. Um, that's amazing. Um, how, how, how did the experience of working at Hasbro and doing so much in advertising and marketing, how does that compare to the time that you spent inventing and creating toys yourself? Um, you know, were they rewarding just in different ways or did you, was, was there one that you preferred over the other? Well, you know, obviously, when you work for yourself, you prefer working for yourself. I mean, you know, your time, your time is your own. Um, you, you can, you know, you can work hard or you can take it easy for a day, a day or so. Um, but, you, you know, um, the, the thing I 
miss most about working at Hasbro, though, were the friendships. Um, I can honestly say um, that when I would get up in the morning and drive to work to Hasbro, I was never, I was always looking forward to getting to work. It was always like I wasn't, wasn't going to a job. I was going to um, a place of uh, fun and adventure. And I was working with people I truly liked. Um, so, I mean, I guess I missed that. I and mean, that was the unique thing about, about Hasbro at the time. When I left, by the time I had left Hasbro, things had changed dramatically. The last, my last two years there were, were not uh, very pleasant. I still enjoyed going to work. I just didn't like uh, how the direction the company was going in. Um, and so I decided, you know, it's time for me to, you know, try doing something different. And how long have you been teaching for? Uh, this is my, let's see, my 10th year. Going into my 11th. September will be my 11th year. Is that something that came naturally to you, or is it something that you've had to sort of figure out over the course of the last 10 years? Uh, a little of both. Um, I had always, when I got out of college, um, uh, I had an uncle who was uh, head of the accounting department at Johnson & Wales. And uh, it was difficult at the time for me finding a job. And um, he uh, suggested that I come to Johnson & Wales part-time and teach uh, advertising and marketing. And uh, I said, well, Uncle, I said, uh, I know advertising, but I, I've never taught marketing. He said, here's the textbook. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I started teaching marketing. Uh, I was like one class ahead of the students. Um, he also, uh, I also started there teaching. Um, Johnson & Wales had a unique program at the time uh, for returning Vietnam veterans. Um, many of the Vietnam vets that were coming back um, either had only a GED, some had never even graduated high school, um, and they were looking to get into higher education, but they needed certain credits to do it. So I started teaching English and reading to a special program that Johnson & Wales ran for about five years uh, aimed specifically at returning Vietnam vets. And I became very familiar with a lot of those guys. In fact, one of them uh, worked with me at, at Hasbro. He was a designer on, on G.I. Joe. It was kind of interesting. This was years before I even you know, started work at Hasbro. Um, and uh, so I, I've always kind of been teaching. It was always been kind of a part-time gig. And then um, when um, Terry and I started having children, um, and, you know, as the kids get a little older and they want to get into uh, uh, Little League or basketball, um, you, I didn't have time. So I took about 10, 12 years off uh, before I approached Providence College about going back and teaching part-time. And the part-time gig led to a full-time position. Well, Kirk, I, I, you've had such a such an interesting life and career, and I think that your the jobs you've had are so fascinating um, and you really have been a part of American history and American culture. Um, and I, and, and that's a really cool thing. And, uh, I really appreciate you coming and talking to me for a little bit of time about this stuff because I, I find it so interesting and I'm, I think my listeners will, will find it interesting as well. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Eric. No problem. Anytime. You've been listening to the shut up. You're always talking podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got it. 
I got that thing. I got to go. With pizza artist Eric John. All right, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.